Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Second Chronicles chapter number 12. Second Chronicles chapter 12. I've got to tell you, I really struggle with trying to decide to bring this message. I've been thinking lately and uh, sometime in the near future, I'm probably going to preach a message entitled Back to the Basics, something along that line, because sometimes, you know, we Christians, we tend to we tend to forget what it's like to not be a Christian. And uh, consequently, you know, we, we have our own vocabulary. You know, after you've been in church for a long time, you know, you understand what justification is and, and glorification and sanctification and things like that. But you let somebody like the way it was when I first started going to church. I'd, I'd never attended church. I'd never read the Bible. I didn't know anything about anything. Uh, other than hunting, fishing, playing ball. That's the only thing I knew anything about. Uh, and so, I mean, it was like uh, starting from scratch. You know, if the preacher said, turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles, I would have had no idea where that was. I might have been, you know, over in the concordance somewhere. I didn't know where it was. And, and so I'm saying all of that for a reason. This morning I've really wrestled with this because sometimes... Sometimes it's difficult to just pick up in the middle of a story, out, of, especially out of the Old Testament, where you know that a number of people are not going to be familiar with it. And uh, you can't read all of the verses, all of the chapters associated with it. It would take all morning to do that in order to develop an understanding of it. And so uh, sometimes it's a real struggle in not knowing what to say, but knowing what not to say. And so I need to leave out a lot of stuff this morning that we don't have time for, and yet I need to make certain that I deliver the message God wants. So here in chapter 12 of Second Chronicles, we find that Solomon, of course, has died. Solomon was the son of David. Solomon was the king of Israel after David passed. And so uh, now he has died, and his son Rehoboam, is reigning in his stead. And think about what a great opportunity this was for, uh, for a young man like that. You know, Grandpa had been the king, his daddy had been the king, and now Rehoboam is the king, and uh, he has this awesome opportunity, but he was ill-prepared for the challenge. And to say that he got off on the wrong foot is an understatement. From the very beginning, you could see the potential for problems. Instead of relieving the people of their heavy taxation, uh, he decided that he was uh, that he was going to just make it tougher on them. And so he followed the the bad advice of his young cohorts, and he refused to listen to the old timers that were there in the kingdom. And he's determined now he's going to show them he's the boss, you know. He, he's in charge now. And that led to a division in the kingdom of Israel. And so the Jeroboam took control of the ten northern tribes, leaving Rehoboam with the two southern tribes. After, after a while, the ten northern tribes fell into idolatry, and so the the priest and the Levites, now keep in mind, these are the religious leaders, so to speak, 
And so they decide that they're going to go back to the two southern tribes because the two southern tribes, at least from the standpoint of their theology, they're, you know, they're holding a line on it. They're, you know, they're stricter about their doctrine and the ten northern tribes have gone off into idolatry. And so now Rehoboam has another great opportunity. I, I mean, he's already created a split in the kingdom as a result of his prideful uh, showing who's going to be the boss. And so he he has split the kingdom. But now he has a great opportunity. He has all of these religious leaders now with him and behind him and, uh, and has this opportunity to, to make good. And he drops the ball again. And, and that's what we're going to look at this morning because he made a serious mistake. He set out to strengthen the kingdom originally. In fact, there were three years that, that things were going real well. Uh, they were maintaining their religious purity and so forth. But then things went horribly wrong. This is in chapter number 11, and we're not going to read it, but you look back there, and you discover that he took 18 wives and 60 concubines. Verse 1 starts in chapter 12 with these words, he forsook the law of the Lord. And that led, of course, to his demise. Now, that's the foundation that, that we're going to build our thoughts on this morning. And now we want to look at the details. And the first thing we need to do is to consider his character. Notice verse 1 again where it says here that he forsook the law of the Lord. He left the law of the Lord. You never know what a person might do until they have the opportunity to do it. You you just never know. You might think that they, you know, that somebody's, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread. Boy, I mean, uh, this, this is just what we've been needing. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, as soon as they are you know, entrenched in their position and assume their power and have their influence, all of a sudden uh, they go wrong. That's what's happened here. In, in the early part of his reign, whenever he had the opportunity to listen to all, the, all of the old-timers, he refused, and now, prideful of his position, he goes to those that he grew up with, basically, is what it's saying. These are the, you know, the kids that was on the block. These are his friends, and he listened to them and forsook the law of the Lord. Let me tell you, when you forsake the law of the Lord, that is moral and spiritual suicide. The wages of sin is what? Death. I, I mean, look, and, and regardless of who you are, God doesn't allow anyone to sin successfully. Amen. Never. You, you, you might think, well, I, you know, I, I'm saved. I can get by with it. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. Well, you know, God can hurt you mighty bad before you get there. Yeah. And, and the Bible tells us that he chasteneth every son that he receives. So if you're a child of God out of the will of God, then God's going to deal with your sin while you are here on this earth. Don't do it. He left the law of God. Now, had it all ended right there, it would have been horrible, but it wouldn't have been quite as bad as what we read next, where it says, "...in all Israel with him." 
he led others astray. And sin's always terrible because sin is against God, but it's even worse when it affects other people. And before you sin, you need to consider the effect that it might have on somebody else. Because it's going to affect others. They might not come out and tell you, and it might not have an ill effect on them immediately, but it will eventually. Mom, Dad, your sin will affect your children. There's no way to get around that. How awful it is that that we would sin and not only hurt ourselves, but to hurt others also. This tells you everything you need to know about his character. He could have made a long list of all of his accomplishments. And by the way, there were some things that would have been on the plus side. There were some good things that happened during his reign. But I'm telling you, this cancels it all out. I remember Dr. Lee Robertson several years ago, and I was listening to him preach, and he preached a monkey with a match. And it's amazing what a monkey with a match can destroy Everything you've worked for all of your life, you put a match in the hands of a monkey and he can burn it all down in a heartbeat. Sometimes we don't need a monkey to destroy what we've got. Sometimes we're the monkey. Sometimes we ourselves are responsible for for destroying our family or destroying the church or bringing destruction to our children. Now we pick up in verse number 2 and go down through verse number 9. We're not going to read all of these verses, but we'll look at just a few key verses here in a minute. And we see his chastisement. I said that we are not allowed to sin successfully. And here we see that there was a terrible price to pay when he rebelled against God. Now we're not given all of the details. Let me try to sum it up for you. It goes on to say that the fenced cities were conquered. Blood was shed. Lives were lost as a result of his sin and the fact that his sin caused others to sin. Of lesser importance, but still significant, is the fact that he lost his treasures in verse number 9. Read with me here. It says, "...in Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem." And took away the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Notice here, the Egyptians took the treasures of gold. The Egyptians took the treasures out of the king's house. And and, and those 300 golden shields that Solomon had made. You see, sin is a thief. It will rob you of your dignity. It'll rob you of your joy. A lot of times, you know, we wonder why in the world, why is it that so-and-so never seems to be happy? They never seem to have joy. They're always down in the mouth. They're always discouraged and what have you. Look, it just might be because of sin in their life. Sin will rob you of your joy. It'll rob you of your peace. It'll ruin your influence. You know, sometimes parents wonder why the kids won't listen to them. Well, it might be because of the way you treat your spouse. You know, they watch how you treat your wife or they watch the mother as she interacts with the father. And so they're just acting out in their rebellion against the parents, you see. And your influence is ruined whenever you sin. It might cost you your health. 
It really can. It can take sin. Listen, sin will put you on a sick bed faster than anything. It'll strip you of your wealth. A lot of times we're so worried about making good investments and how much it's going to pay and so forth. You better concern yourself about this matter of sin because it'll take every penny you've got. And it might even take your life. John said, there is a sin unto death. Solomon said, why will a man die before his time? It's possible that we could lose our life as a result of sin. So you better stop and think about what you stand to lose whenever you sin against God. Like the old saying, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. That's what we see going on here. There are people that have died as a result of this sin. The wall, fortified cities have been uh, been taken captive. And in verses 5 through 8 here, now God doesn't explain everything in these verses here, but it's significant that God doesn't lead, leave anything to chance. And He's wanting us to know there is a cause for every effect. We, I say that because we need to learn to see God in everything. Don't ever fall into the silly trap of thinking, well, whatever happened to me just happened, you know. It's, uh, that's just the way life is. It just happened. Well, you know, yeah, it just happened, but it happened because God, number one, either caused it, or number two, God allowed it. One way or the other, God was involved in it, you see. I'm not saying it was because of some sin in your life, but I'm saying that it might be because of some sin in your life. And and the Lord explains all of that in verses 5 through 8 there. He's describing how that Shishak the king of Egypt came against you, but it was God who caused all of this to happen. He wanted him to know this is no accident. You might think that they just overwhelmed you momentarily. Everything's going to be all right. No, it's not all right. You sinned against me. I'm allowing them to conquer you. So God's behind it all. He always is. Now, now what do you do? What do you do whenever something like this has happened? I mean, you've already made a fool out of yourself. You've lost the people's respect. You've caused the loss of life. You've made this horrible, terrible mess out of things. What do you do? Now we see his compromise. Let's read on down, beginning in verse 9. So Sheshach, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and took all. And he carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Now listen carefully. Instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance to the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again unto the guard chamber. Well, historians tell us that in those days that these shields were used by the king's guard when they would escort him to the temple. There would be 150 on each side of the road, and this was a, this was a public display of his power and his prosperity. Here comes the king. 
And boy, though you could see those golden shields glistening in the sun, but now they're gone. God has allowed the enemy to take away those valuable shields. Each one weighed, according to the best calculations, over three pounds apiece. Imagine three pounds of gold, 300 of those. Each one over three pounds of gold, and now they're gone. What do you do? Well, you've got a couple of options. You can either repent of your sins and go out and recover them, or you can replace them if possible. But notice what he did. He made 300 shields of brass. These are cheap imitations. These are copies of the real thing. This is a cover-up. Whenever they shine that brass up and they're out there, you know, and that brass is it's glistening in the sun, the passerbyers, they couldn't tell the difference. They, you know, they wasn't able to get up there and visually inspect each one of those shields. They couldn't tell the difference. It looked like, you know, to them, well, everything's all right. They don't know the treasures are gone. But Rehoboam knows they're gone, and he's trying to cover up the fact that he is responsible for having lost these treasures. And now he's doing a cover-up. He's pretending that the problem doesn't really exist. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Shields of brass. Pretending that all is well when it isn't. And you better believe a lot of folks are doing exactly that. Before we judge Rehoboam, we better stop and examine ourselves because it just might be that you're giving God brass instead of gold. You're pretending that you're better than you are. One of the most scathing indictments against the children of Israel is revealed in Malachi chapter number 1. And these people, the Jewish people, had not, they had not denied God. They had not stopped worshiping God altogether. But they were treating God like he was in the junk business. Kind of like some Baptists do today. We'll just give God the leftovers. God required the very best. God required that when they offered up a sacrifice, it would be a male of the first year and without spot and without blemish. And they were giving as sacrifices, they were giving God the lambs that were halt and lame and maimed and blind and not fit for anything but to be slaughtered and certainly not fit to, to be a sacrifice to God. They're thinking to themselves, this thing has been attacked by the wolves, it's going to die anyway. We might as well use it as a sacrifice because the priest is just going to kill it anyway. We might as well give it to him. How sad that we would give God the leftovers instead of the very best. And that's what they were doing. And so God told them, look, I, I, don't, I don't want anything you've got to offer. He said, look, you wouldn't offer that to the governor, would you? You wouldn't try to get by, you know, in the way you treat your employer or anybody else. Why do you think I'll be satisfied with it? And then he said, take away, speaking of their music and so forth, take away all of that noise from me. 
It's just noise in the ears of God when it's less than our best. Now, basically, that's what Rehoboam is doing. He lost, as a result of his sin, the golden shields, and so now he's going to offer to God a cheap imitation. It would have been a whole lot better if he would have just fell on his face before God and admitted his sin and made things right spiritually. Look, God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. Don't kid yourself. You might lose all because of sin, when, but when you get right, God can give you back everything you lost and even more if He so chooses. But He's not doing that. He's, he's pretending to be something He's not. And sometimes we do that. We do that when we behave one way at church and another way someplace else. Now you tell me that doesn't happen. How about I ask your wife if that happens, or your kids? What about if I ask them? Is mom and dad are they are they the same at home and everywhere else as they are at church? I wonder, you know, if they really told the truth, it, it, it'd be a sad story. No, at church, I was talking a while back. I was reconnected or united with a with a girl who was just a teenager back when I pastored in Missouri. In fact, I conducted the, the marriage ceremony. They, they, uh, her and her husband, they graduated from Baptist Bible College, moved off. He pastored for, I don't know, must be 40 years out in Kansas and out there. And, and I'll never forget her telling me some things that I didn't know. Now, Bev knew by women's intuition things that I didn't know. I just assumed this guy was my best friend, the greatest guy in all of the world, God's gift to the church. That's the way he come across to the church. I mean, he was Mr. Somebody at the church. But that dirty, rotten rascal treated his family like pure dirt. And I'm telling you, there's more of that that goes on than what we realize in this world today. And people go on pretending that all is well when all you see is brass. It's not the pure gold. But we can do it in other ways. We Sometimes we pretend that we're giving our best when we know in our heart that we're not really giving God our best. Sometimes we pretend that we are worshiping God in spirit and truth when in reality it's all brass and there's no gold. Were it not for the fact that I have some dear friends that that go to this particular place, I would mention it by name, but I'll refrain from that. But I'll never forget this place that famous for its camp meetings. Boy, I don't know about you, but I, I used to like those camp meetings and old Brush Arbor meetings, tent meetings. I preached in a lot of tent meetings and Brush Arbor meetings and stuff like that. And those old camp meetings, boy, I want to tell you what, they, they can really get you fired up. But you can also see some of the biggest nonsense you've ever seen in your life at some of those places. It is so phony, so fake, so much so much of the flesh that is sickening, folks. 
Let me tell you right now, we can pretend that we're worshiping God in spirit and in truth, but in God's sight, it's brass. It's just a cheap imitation. We, look, we can fool some people, but we don't fool God. He knows. It might be that we're pretending to forgive people. Somebody that has wronged us, and we, we are pretending that we have forgiven them. Oh, we know that's the Christian thing to do. We ought to forgive them, and so we go through all of the motions. Yeah, you know, I forgive you for the wrong that you've done, but deep down in our heart, we know, we, look, we'd like to slit their throat. We have no more forgiven them than the man in the moon. But we're pretending we have. As though that makes everything all right. Or we pretend that we love somebody that we don't. I've got a message, you know. What, 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 what do you do uh, in dealing with people that you don't love? The, the hardest part is, is admitting sometimes that we don't love people like we should. That love is absent. But it's really easy to pretend that we love somebody. I mean, we can all do that, Right? We can pretend like we love someone, but it's all brass. There's no goal to it. We are just pretending that we care about them when we really don't care about them. I'll never forget one of our, in another church, a deacon's wife telling, telling Bev, I, I, I didn't know it, but she was telling Bev, said, I can't wait till my youngest child graduates from school so I can leave my husband. Now, you would have never known anything about that at church. I'm talking about a family that was really faithful, dedicated to the Lord. But yet she was living with a man that she didn't love, a man that she couldn't stand, and she was just waiting till the youngest kid got out of school and she was going to dump him. Pretense. That's all brass. There's no goal to it. And that goes on all of the time. Sometimes we admit our sin without repenting of it. Now stay with me. There's so many times, you know, especially in a church that, that actually practices church discipline. And there's so many times somebody will maybe come forward and they will what we call they will confess their sin. After all, the Bible says if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here they come down the aisle. The preacher that morning just happened to really, you know, preach on their particular sin. And they realize that now, you know, the preacher's even preaching about the subject and they know that a lot of other people know what's going on now and it's crunch time. They've got to do something about it. What do they do? Here they come down the aisle and it happens again and again. I've come today to, you know, to confess the fact that I had an affair last month. Well, for the last several months maybe. If you want to get technical about it, yeah, well, it's been going on for really actually a long time. And they admit that they've sinned, but they never really repent of it. It's not a true confession. When the Bible says if we confess our sins, that word confess means to come into agreement with. We come into agreement with our sin, come into agreement with God about our sin. That's the point. 
And a lot of times that so-called confession is nothing more than an admission to get people off of our back. It's an escape hatch. Are are they sorry about it? Oh, they're sorry they got caught. And it happens again and again and again. Let me tell you what happens. Usually after the confession and some months or maybe sometimes a year or so go by and they turn around and do exactly the same thing again because they've never actually repented of it. Now, you can fool other people, but you can't fool God. Listen, you can't be holy without being honest. And whether we like it or not, the Bible puts a premium on holiness. Holiness is important to God. You know, we we work overtime trying to be happy, but we never find true happiness until we pursue holiness. And there can't be any holiness unless there's honesty. We've got to come clean about our spiritual condition. And that requires humility. Because it's pride that keeps us from confessing our sin. God demands the best. God deserves the best. And He's able to discern whether or not we're actually giving Him the best. And we're in danger when we don't. Now I want to sum sum up this story of Rehoboam by looking at one other aspect of his life, and that's his confusion. Because whenever you read on, you notice in verse number 1, he rebels against God. Verse number 6, he re- repents, at least to some extent, to some degree. Verse 12, he humbles himself. Verse number 14, he does evil again. You see, that's what I just got through saying. These people, it's just like it was back during the times of the judges. If you study the book of Judges, you'll see that that Israel went through this cycle over and over and over again. You know, they would sin, God God would chastise them. They would repent, God would restore them. They'd turn around and sin again. And it happened over and over and over And it's the same way with a lot of people. You never know what to expect out of them. They're hot today and they're cold tomorrow. They're up one day, they're down the next day. They seem to be forever confused. And if they're not confused, everybody else around them is confused. Are they real or not? Are they gold or are they brass? You look at his repentance, if you read on through the story, you look at his repentance and you'll see that it really left a lot to be desired. But the amazing thing is that in in spite of that, it was enough to stay the hand of God in the punishment of the nation. He had been foolish to do what he did. He would have been more foolish to not have repented of it. Now, why would God, if the repentance wasn't everything that it ought to be, why in the world would God choose to show His favor toward them when it's less than what it should have been? Why would God do that? Well, I think the reason is because God's trying to convince him, I am anxious to forgive you. I am anxious to restore you. God, look, God's not some God that is afar off, that is difficult to please. 
Did I get that right? Uh, God is anxious to bless you. That's what grace is all about. You'll never, you'll never be able to earn your way with God. You'll never be able to obligate God. It's impossible. That's why everything we receive is because of the grace of God. If you've been offering brass instead of gold, if you've been pretending that all is well when it isn't, let me give you a word of advice. Take corrective measures ASAP. Do something about it as fast as you can. It's no time to delay. Whenever we're pretending, God's watching. He knows what we're doing. And there's a hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. The one thing for which there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament was the sin of presumption. We presume that we can just keep doing this and getting by with it. We presume, well, God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And, and uh, you know, I know I shouldn't do this, but, but it'll, it'll all turn out all right. That's the worst attitude you can have. Presuming on God. Presuming you can sin and you can get by with it. Give God brass when God demands go. Now, here's something even better than that, and that's prevention is better than cure. I mean, wouldn't it have been wonderful if Rehoboam had been able to look back on his life and have never made that error in judgment? Think of all of the bloodshed. Think of the loss. Think of the heartache. All of the things that could have been avoided if he would have just stayed true to God. And you mark it down, when you depart from God, you're always going to regret it later. Stay in the will of God. If you've not fallen by the wayside, if you've not started playing that silly game of pretending to be what you're not, then repent of your sins before it's too late. Make things right with God if you have to. But if you haven't fallen into that trap, whatever you do, don't even think about it. We need to consider the possibility of what we're going to lose. Get rid of the fool's gold. I can remember being raised in Missouri and over the Joplin area, there a lot of lead mines there and a lot of what, what we call fool's gold. And it's real easy, you know, to find sometimes a chunk of rock that looks like it's gold and it's really not gold. It's just fool's gold. And let me tell you, the devil has a lot of fool's gold trying to deceive you. And God demands the finest pure gold. He deserves our very best, and that's what he demands. Maybe you're here today, and, uh, and in regards to the matter of your salvation, it's all been a matter of pretense. Now, I know sometimes people are just confused. They really think they're saved when they're not. Over in the book of Matthew, we find the Lord talking about those people there in chapter number 7. And they said, Lord, Lord, have we not done this in your name? You know, we prophesied in your name. We've done all these wonderful works in your name. 
look, these are people that called him Lord and people that, 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 that I believe from what they're saying evidently think that they're the children of God. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. But while you have some people that are just simply deceived, they're, they think they're saved when they're not. They're, look, there are people that, that think they're saved because they joined the church or got baptized. And they're not saved if that's what they're depending on. But they think they are. They'll argue with you about it. They'll tell you, I'm just as convinced, you know, that I'm going to heaven as you are. What makes you think you're better than I am? Well, it's not a matter of us being better than them. It's a matter of what we're depending on for our salvation. They're depending on baptism. We're depending on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for us. That's what makes a difference. But then there are those others that actually know deep down in their heart, they know they're not saved. Their old stubborn pride just will not allow them to come clean and to admit it. They're afraid to face the facts and to face the other people. You know, they've been pretending for so long that they're saved and, you know... What are people going to think? Well, I'll tell you what, if their heart's right with God, they'll think this is one of the most wonderful things that ever happened. If if you're so worried about what people think this morning, and that's holding you back, let me just assure you that there wouldn't be anything make us any happier than to see you saved this morning. Don't you worry about, by the way, what somebody else might think. You worry about what God thinks about it. And I can tell you what He thinks. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. what the Bible says. He wants you to be saved so much that He gave His own dear Son on the cross at Calvary to die for your sins. And I'm really convinced, folks, that if we Christians would stop offering brass instead of gold and it become apparent to those that are unsaved that we are the real thing, I'm convinced we'd see a lot more people saved. Because the most common excuse we hear for people not wanting to be a Christian is like Gandhi said many years ago. Think about the influence he could have had over all of India. And he said, I would have become a Christian had it not been for Christians. Wow. What a, what a horrible indictment that is against us. They look. They need to see that we got the real thing. Mom, Dad, if you want your kids to be saved, they need to be convinced in their heart that you're not just pretending. You're just shining the brass Sunday morning. They 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 want to be convinced that it's pure gold that you have. They'll get interested in their need whenever they see mom and dad so serious that they give God the finest gold of their life, their very best. Would you do that this morning? We're going to give you that opportunity. We want to encourage you to come. And if we can help, we want to help you any way we can. We're going to stand and our musicians and Tim's going to come and we're going to sing.
those awaiting baptism, if you'll come, Brother, Tenna, Brother Kenneth is going to conduct that ceremony, and so you go with him and Brother Rick Morris, I think, going back to the door here to be prepared for that in just a little bit. But if you're here this morning, God's speaking to your heart about anything whatsoever. Maybe it's time for you to just get rid of the brass and say, Lord, I want to give you the gold of my life. Father, how we thank you this morning for your exceeding great goodness, your grace, your mercy, all of those attributes that, that, that so impress our heart to the point that we just are left without words to describe how good you are. We can sing our choruses. We can lift up our, our voice in hymns. We can write poems, preach sermons, do everything imaginable. Trying to express how we feel about you. But Lord, I pray this morning that you'll just help each and every one of us to, to show the world how we feel about you by putting it into shoe leather and living it out before their very eyes. May they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Speak to our hearts this morning. We don't deserve anything, but we realize you're a gracious God. We come asking you in Jesus' name that you will bless us in spite of our faults that you'll save the soul that's nearest hell, that you'll be glorified in all that's said and done. For we ask it in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Now, as